next week. Also, we have a town meeting scheduled for Wednesday evening this week, and we'd like to change that to tomorrow evening at 6. Tomorrow evening at 6. The reason for that being we have a court date uh, Monday morning uh, at 9 o'clock Arizona time, which is 10 Mountain Standard or Utah time, over at the Moccasin Court on the reservation. You're all welcome to attend, and any who do, I think, would help show the support that it's not just about uh, Marla and myself, but it's about all of us and our community. So as many as wish or can show, that would be a, probably a good thing. But I would like to go over uh, some of the things that I plan to bring up as testimony in the trial uh, with you and see if you might have some additional things to add uh, or thoughts, uh, as well as after the formal meeting to have a meeting with those that I intend to call as witnesses uh, to what we're doing and what we have done and to what the county has done so that we might be sure we're on the same page uh, in those terms. I do feel that God will take care of us, that we have nothing to worry about. I don't know that I have time to explain a lot about why I feel that legally he has a responsibility, but maybe a few words. You will recall that God brought Israel out of a captivity of over 400 years in Egypt, and he took them to the Red Sea. Now, he could have left them in Egypt, but he brought them out. Now, they were in the hands, at the behest of God, of those Egyptians for that amount of time. Actually, I don't think it was 400 years in Egypt or 430. It came from the Abraham Covenant, but we'll get into that at some other time. From that time forward, they were under a penalty from God. Now, when he brought them out... He legally obligated himself. Israel did not obligate him. He obligated himself to take care of them, to be their leader and their ruler, as opposed to the Egyptians being their leaders and their rulers. So by delivering them, he took that upon himself, and indeed he did deliver them. Now they, however, did not trust him as a leader, even as they had not truly trusted Egypt. And in fact, it turned out they trusted Egypt more than they trusted God and wanted to go back to Egypt because they did not feel that God was as good a leader as Pharaoh. That's what that amounted to. So their carcasses died in the wilderness. Maybe I should wait till we get into Hebrews 12 to say this. If this is already on the tape, let's go ahead and leave it in there. Uh, if it's not, that's okay, too. But you and I well know that God has told us to come out of Babylon. He is going to punish Babylon, and he does not want us to be partakers of their sins and their plagues. And if we oblige ourselves by staying in Babylon, then by virtue of being there, we will partake of her plagues. It's a legal matter. 
Now, if we come out as God has told us, he has taken that responsibility upon himself for us to come out. We have followed further instructions. He said, leave the cities and go dwell in the wilderness. I will deliver you there. That is an absolute confirming statement from Almighty God. Some would say he wasn't talking to you and he wasn't talking about now. But it is an end-time prophecy. And it's the end-time prophecies are talking about now. So that applies to whomever might find themselves in Babylon now is who it applies to. And he says there in Micah 4, go even to Babylon. Don't try to get completely out of it, but get out of the cities. Go dwell in the wilderness of the field in Babylon, is what is it saying. By telling us to do that and us obey it, we are doing what Israel did when they gathered the things up and left Egypt. And God has obligated himself. He has taken, by us doing what he said, we are saying we want you to rule us. And by making the statement telling us what to do, he is saying I will deliver you. Zephaniah 2, he tells us to gather ourselves before the coming economic crash spoken of in Zephaniah 1. So, by telling us to gather ourselves together and get out of Babylon and go into a wilderness and build towns that are godly towns, he is saying he will protect us, be a wall of fire around us, and a covert from the heat. At some point... He will have to do that because he has legally obligated himself to do so by instructing us in what to do. We are therefore to obey him, to accept him as our leader and our ruler. And for that reason, we are not to fear and we are not to worry. God will deliver us in his time and in his way because he has to. I am not obligating him, except by obeying him. We are not. But he has obligated himself by telling us to come where we have come and do what we are doing. The only danger is that we waver and fear and turn back. then our carcasses will be wasted with the Babylonians. That is much of the message of the book of Hebrews. Come boldly before the throne of God. And I'm telling you that legally speaking, in a court in heaven, God is legally obligated to hear our prayers and deliver us if we will obey him. He has put himself in that position Therefore, we can go boldly before God and we can ask for his help, protection, and deliverance from any foes who come against us for doing what he has told us to do.
We are not to be defiant or rebellious against the powers that be. There are many scriptures that make that plain. But we are to withdraw ourselves, and we are to take his leadership and his direction and follow what he says. It went against all human reason and logic to defy the Egyptians and walk out of Egypt, didn't it? Would that be smart in any time in human history to be an escaped slave? What happens to escaped slaves? And as throughout history, they are hunted down and killed. Always. Are recaptured and put back into servitude. It's happened in every continent, in every culture, in every part of history. We have been the slaves of Babylon under the wooden yoke. And God has asked us to break that yoke off our necks in Isaiah 52 and not let Babylon walk on us anymore, but to rule ourselves under God and let him rule us. Are we ready for that? Perhaps we wouldn't be here unless we were. We may or may not be delivered in this first round. I do not know. But there again, harken back to Egypt. Was Israel delivered after the first round? First plague? It not only came on Egypt, it came on them. What about the second round? Second plague came on Egypt, came on them. I think the third one as well. Wasn't it the fourth one when God made a difference? Or is it the second? I forget. Four, first four came on them. doesn't matter here academically. The point is, would they have taken confidence and faith when God says, I'm going to deliver from the Egyptians and then Everything that happened to the Egyptians happened to them too. Then God made a difference. And he made a separation. But even then the plagues came on the Egyptians, not them. It was way down the line before God actually delivered. He had to try them. He had to test them. He had to see if they were serious, committed, and meant business before he delivered. Should we be any different? God has obligated himself. He has promised it. If we will be faithful and true, he will test us. He will try us. He has been. He will some more until he is sure. With Abraham, he took it a step further because Abraham was to be the very father of the faithful and even had him be willing to sacrifice his son as a final test, just as he himself would sacrifice his son. Now that was a test on God, wasn't it? He had obligated himself to save us from our sins before the foundations of the world. He had said, if man sins, and I'm sure he will, you must go down there and die after having lived a perfect life. 
By putting Adam and Eve in that garden, having created them and made promises to them, God obligated himself to save us from that sin, ultimately. And he put himself to the test by sending his son to the earth to die for all men. And he let the father of the faithful, humanly speaking, do that as a type and as a final test for him. Are we in this all the way or just partway? God does not like the timid and the fearful. He says he won't hear the timid and the fearful. He wants us to come boldly to the throne of God. So though I know nothing about courts and will, or will defend this myself, I believe God is on our side no matter what or which way it goes because he's legally obligated himself to take care of us. Whether or not we win this first round is neither here nor there. We may go through a lot between now and the time that armies surround Jerusalem and we have to flee for our very lives. But he said if we are accounted worthy, he will take us out and protect us. And that is the final physical protection that he has to give. But he's going to protect his towns without walls of Zechariah 2 even before that. So there will be need for protection, okay? I'm telling you ahead of time that there's trouble coming. God doesn't need to protect you from it if it isn't there. So he's telling you by saying, I will protect you, the trouble will come. So, comes with a territory, if it's the way it is. Maybe it's good that we've been going through Hebrews. I didn't plan it necessarily in this way, but we might be able to even finish it up today, uh, just prior to this case. Maybe we won't, I don't know. Anyway, a meeting tonight, uh, tomorrow night at 6. I have another item I wish to talk about, which is very encouraging, but I want to get into it a little further down here. I hope I don't forget it as we finish up Hebrews 12. Now, we spent considerable time in uh, Hebrews 12 diverting off onto some elements of things that pertain to it, but I'd like to go on down through it in context now today. This chapter started by showing that we had many witnesses in Hebrews 11 uh, to those who were faithful and do, who did trust in God no matter what the circumstance and how their salvation is secure. But they are in their graves waiting for us so that we might all be raised together. God does not put Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Peter, James, Paul, and all those people ahead of us. They may have higher offices in the kingdom of God, but they are not given their reward any sooner than ours will be given. So God counts us very, very important. That should be encouraging to us. And that we're to look to Emmanuel, who is the author and finisher of our faith, who despised all the shame and the persecution, tribulation that came against him for God's sake, and is today sitting at the right hand of God, 
He goes on to show we've not resisted to blood striving against sin. We've not put as much into overcoming as we need to, even though it seems like we put a lot of effort into it. And that he then does chasten and spank all those he loves and treats them as sons. And the purpose for his chastening is that we might be partakers of his holiness in verse 10. And if we will listen to the chastening instead of rebelling against it, then it will bring the peaceful fruits of righteousness and holiness. And he instructs us not to be discouraged, but to lift up our feeble hands and legs and put them in the right direction and walk the way that Christ walked. He didn't turn away from his Father's way, nor did he turn away from the ridicule and the shame that came as a result of following God's way. He didn't care what men thought or what men did to him. He is our example. Then in verse 14 he says, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the eternal. There we digress to show how Israel had rebelled against that, and when someone took them captivity, they fought them rather than accepting the captivity as having come from God, and God fought against them rather than for them. So when he says, follow peace with all men and holiness, he means it. And if you don't do that, you won't see the eternal. All right, let's go to 15 then. Looking diligently, lest any man fall of the grace of God. You're not once saved, always saved. You can fall from the grace of God. It can happen. And he uses an example. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and therefore many be defiled. Because one person becomes bitter and angry, upset, frustrated, turned off, tuned out, it can defile many. Just as a bad apple can destroy a whole barrel. That is why in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul told the Corinthian church to put that man who was committing a bad sin right out in public view with no shame, put him out of the church. Or as I think it's in Titus, it says, a heretic or an unbeliever or someone in a wrong attitude after the second and third admonition, reject, put them out. Because that attitude will defile others. It's contagious. So I said, don't let anyone become discouraged, bitter, hateful, and full of animosity toward others. Because that can happen. You see, what you're doing when you let yourself get into that kind of a negative mood and attitude is you are denying Christ. He did not open his mouth to defend himself. He did not accuse anyone else. I'm quoting from Isaiah 53, or paraphrasing it. But remained silent and accepted any abuse that would heap upon him did not defend himself in any way. And we are to walk as he walked. When we find ourselves doing the wrong thing, or saying the wrong thing, we try to blame someone else and say they're the real problem. Or we defend ourselves. Sometimes we lie. 
instead of just saying, I'm sorry, I won't do that anymore. We must be very, very careful. Maybe we don't think of it as denying Christ, but you are, because you're denying his attitude, his spirit, his approach, his mind. You are failing to walk the way he walked. And that is an attitude that can destroy you and destroy others. It is taking his life and his sacrifice lightly, as Esau did. You can lose your salvation, falling from the spirit of grace of God, by letting yourself get into a bitter or rotten or negative attitude toward God and others. Because we are instructed to love man and God, or God and man. So we might kid ourselves that we are not denying God by having attitudes toward people. But we are. Because God says that loving each other as brethren is how men will know that we are following him. We look at Esau with disdain and contempt sometimes, even though the Bible warns us not to because he's our brother. Esau had some serious problems, had some serious things done to him, and he went the wrong direction. He let bitterness and hate and shame overcome him. We simply cannot allow that to happen. We have to repent of that attitude. That is really at the core of why God has had to destroy and scatter the church today. It's because we took God lightly, we had a form of godliness, but we denied the power thereof. Yes, we kept the Sabbath, we kept the feasts, but we denied the power of God. We cannot take his power lightly. Maybe I should recount a story right here based on that scripture that happened just yesterday. Terry Romehild was born with a congenital birth defect, and I think in his teen years, if I remember the story correctly, uh, he had some problems. I think his spleen was attached to his stomach in a wrong way or something like that anyway. So they did an operation, and he's had a problem ever since, every eight, nine, ten years, with that rupturing. I think there was a bleeding ulcer there at one point in his life, and they operated and took half his stomach. I may not get all the details right here, but the point is where I want to wind up anyway. In other words, there's been a history of a lot of problems there. The last time this happened, I think, was eight or nine years ago. Uh, and I believe at that time he was rushed to the hospital because he's bleeding out internally very rapidly. Uh, like you'd gut shot him, and all his blood was rushing into his stomach, and he was puking up blood. So they rushed him to the hospital where he took four pints of blood along with whatever they used to congeal that so that it would stop the bleeding. Otherwise, he would have simply bled out and died. Well, yesterday morning, I got a call about 5.30, and he had started bleeding out again. 
it bled a great deal. There's a wastebasket there. As I came in, he was throwing up blood just in great gobs. There must have been at least a quart, maybe more, in the bottom of that trash can. Now, maybe there were stomach fluids and various other things there. It may not have been pure blood, but he was bleeding very rapidly. So I anointed him and asked God to heal him. And he was so weak and ash gray in the face that he could barely even speak and having cramps in his legs as well. And he said, I don't care what happens to me. I don't want to go to the hospital necessarily, but he said, I'm worried about any persecution if I lay here and bleed to death that might come on my wife and upon the church. So he asked Vicky to call the paramedics and get him in so that we would not have problems on us. And while they were on their way out, his color returned. We began to talk. And I said, I don't care what persecution they bring on the church. And Vicky didn't care what persecution they might bring on us. So he said, let's cancel it. The bleeding stopped. They came, took his blood pressure and monitored his heart and and he kind of downplayed it and talked more about the cramps than he did the bleeding. Didn't lie to them, but he didn't tell them everything that was going on. He threw up again right after they left. It may have just been residue that was still in the stomach, but he quit bleeding. Normally speaking, he would have laid right there and bled to death. But I believe with all my heart God intervened. But he heard our prayers. But I also believe that the critical moment was when he said, it's not about me, it's about persecution on the church, but if you're not worried about that, I won't worry about it either. I'm going to leave this entirely in God's hands. It stopped. Just like that. He had made a firm decision. This is the way I will go. I'm using this as a good example. If we fall short of that decision, I don't say anything about it one way or another. We have to learn and we have to all eventually come to the point we trust God with our health, our wealth, and everything else. But when he made a decision, I'm leaving this entirely in God's hands, no matter what, I will not fear the world, nor I will not fear death. He had two decisions to make. When both those decisions had been made, the answer came. Now, we can have a form of godliness by keeping the Sabbath, by keeping the feasts, by following the form of religion. But if we deny the power of God to intervene in our lives, be it in health, be it in wealth, be it in persecution, or whatever it may be. If we deny that power, then God has no use for us. 
we must come to trust in the power of God to deliver us from any situation, whatever it may be, or trust Him that if He allow us to die, we be in His kingdom. That's the bottom line anyway, isn't it? Why do we cling so hard to this life? Perhaps it is fear, and we don't really trust God to save us anyway. But we don't want to die. Terry showed God that he was willing to trust him no matter what. And I would say at the last moment is when God intervened. Normally speaking, when you lose two quarts of blood, you're down pretty low. And there was nothing there to stop the bleeding. I think he would have gone ahead and bled out, just as he would have eight or nine years ago, had they not artificially stopped it and given him more blood. He's weak today because he lost so much, but he's not bleeding and he's essentially healthy. I wanted to recount that to you because I think it is a good example of someone deciding I'm going to go God's way regardless of the cost, just as Abraham did with Isaac. And at the last split second, God preserved Isaac and Abraham in that sense. I believe he did the same thing with Terry Romehill yesterday. It's a wonderful example for us of someone who stood up for what he believed. And it wasn't just a form of godliness, but he believed in the power of God, and it worked. But so often God takes us right to the precipice, doesn't he? He wants to know. He needs to know. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person, as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Took it pretty lightly. God has promised us eternal salvation. He's even promised us blessing in this life if we will obey him. But he tries us and tests us. And he doesn't always give all the answers when we first try something. We have to go through a growing process. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing. He was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, so he sought it carefully with tears. Once we work ourselves into such a bad, selfish attitude, it's hard to get out of it. Bitterness is probably the hardest thing for someone to overcome. It's easy to simply withdraw from one another. God says, don't do that. We'll see that a little later on here if we get that far. We're all part of the same body. Esau withdrew from his brother. He withdrew from his parents. He on purpose married outside the bounds of what he should have done and what would have pleased his parents just out of rebellion. He swore to kill Jacob as soon as he got through mourning his father's death, whenever that might come. 
So he says, if you're going to treat me that way, I will withdraw from you. You can't do that. Do we hurt one another? Sure we do. We need to get over it. We need to repent of it. We can't be selfish about it and go off and do our own thing because we don't like the way people treat us. I doubt Christ liked the way people treated him. But he opened not his mouth to defend himself, spoke not a word. Maybe I should go back and make a comment here about something that I quoted in passing and emphasized a little bit last week because it did rattle a cage or two. Let's go back to 1 Timothy 5. This is kind of a digression, but it kind of fits as well. 1 Timothy 5. This is a letter of pastoral instruction from Paul to Timothy on how to handle matters within the church. 1 Timothy 5. Verse 19 says, uh, well, he's, he's talking about the ministry here. Let's establish that first. Go up as far as verse 17. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. He's not talking about spiritual reward here. He's talking about payment in the ministry. The ministry was to live by the word. That's very clear throughout Scripture. Some people hate it and despise it, but that's Scripture. Sorry about that. If you don't like it, that's just the way it is. The way God set it up. Always has been, from the Levitical priesthood on down. 19 is the one I quoted. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. People take exception to that, saying, well, how is a minister supposed to be special above anyone else? Well, they've been charged with a job to do before God. And before making further comment on this, for a moment, let's go back to Deuteronomy 17. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change in principle. He changes some forms, like animal sacrifice, but he doesn't change in principle. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. This is talking about a man or a woman that has committed a sin worthy of death. You're to stone them with stones till they die, verse 5, end of verse 5. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. Now this was any person in the congregation of Israel who did a sin that you would be stoned for. So it applied really to anyone. You know, one person can have a grudge against another. They could trump up some charges and have somebody stoned. I saw this person do such and such. God didn't let it happen that way. There had to be at least two, preferably three witnesses before that could happen. Chapter 19, verse 5. Oh, verse 4. And this is the case of the slayer which shall flee thither that he may live, whoso kills his neighbor ignorantly, whom he hated not in time past, 
As when a man goes into the wood with his neighbor to hew wood, and his hand fetched a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree, and the head slips from the uh, handle and lights upon his neighbor that he died. Uh, is, is that the 19.5? That's what I wrote down. I might have missed it. Uh, okay, verse 15, I should have written down. We won't go into all the detail, but it says, One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, and any sin that he sins. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. So you had to have two or three witnesses, and it goes on to say that those who were the witnesses, who did the accusing, had to be the first ones to start throwing the stones. You know, it's real easy to let somebody else do your dirty work. Maybe you didn't like so-and-so, so you trumped up a charge against him, but you wanted somebody else to do the actual killing. No, God says you've got to stomp your own snakes. If you're going to bring those charges, you've got to be the one to take a rock and throw it at his head. I've seen people from town often have problems with a dog. They won't either euthanize it or go out and put it under themselves, but they say, oh, let's just go turn it loose somewhere out in the farm areas. No, you've got to take care of your own problems. What you're doing is obligating someone else to do your dirty work for you because that dog will then either starve, half-starve, or start stealing someone's chickens and, and some farmer has to kill it for you. That is not fair to the farmer. It is not loving your neighbor as yourself and it is not responsible on your part. If it's your problem, dog, you cause the problem. And it should be you who handles it. Not put your problems off on someone else. Now, I'm just using a little physical example here that's been a pet peeve of mine because I've generally always lived in the country and I've had a lot of stray dogs come around that people from town just released. And I didn't like it a bit that I had to deal with them. I didn't like it a bit that they killed my chickens or whatever and I had to kill them. Now this is a much more serious issue, but it's the same principle. If you bring an accusation, then you must be responsible for that accusation. Revelation 11, verse 3. I won't turn back and read it, but it says he'll give power to his two witnesses. God will not even punish this world without establishing the problems of the world in the mouth of at least two witnesses. And then he will begin to bring that destruction. Now let's go back for a moment and consider 1 Timothy 5. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Understand that if an elder commit a serious sin, it could spiritually or ministerially stone him. 
In other words, if he lose confidence of the people as a teacher, his ministry has come to an end. His ministerial life, if you will. So, Paul is simply telling Timothy that if an accusation against an elder comes up, you be sure that there are two or three witnesses to establish that before you hear it, that is, before you give it an ear and make a judgment on it. Now, some may think that's unfair, but it's God's way. It's Scripture. It's what God said to do. Now, you can go back to Matthew 18 and find that it echoes Deuteronomy 17:6 and 19:5, where God says, if any brother, anybody, sin against you, you are to go to that person alone and settle it, if at all possible, on a one-to-one level. If not, you are to take two or three witnesses that it may be established, just as is said in Deuteronomy and in 1 Timothy. And if you won't listen to them, then take it officially to the church for a judgment to the ministry. Most people, most of the time, simply do not and will not follow this. They just won't because of fear, because of timidity, because of the reaction of others, and the reaction of others is often defensive and prideful, egocentric and selfish, and they won't listen because we lack humility. And we will defend ourselves, we will deny, we will lie, anything to protect, we think, ourselves. And that is why people are fearful of approaching each other when they see something that they think may be wrong. It's hard to have the courage to do it when you've been burned before, when you've approached someone about something. People get all agitated if you go tell the minister. Don't do that. Well, they don't look at themselves and say, why did I do this? I need to repent. They just don't want anyone telling anyone else. That in itself is a wrong, selfish attitude. We want to hide our sin ourselves. Now, I don't think we need to go running to the minister all the time. People threaten it a lot, but seldom do they do it anyway. Well, I'll go tell so-and-so, but most of the time they don't do it anyway. It's just a threat to keep distance. We need to learn to handle these things the way God would have them handled. Well, don't tell the minister. Why don't you want them to tell the minister? Because you fear he will come down on you. Well, if you did something or said something wrong, why don't you just repent? Why don't you tell that person, instead of defending yourself, I'm sorry. I'll try not to do that again. I was weak. I let myself get in the wrong attitude. I said the wrong things. Instead, we'll try to transfer the blame to them or to someone else. Or to the minister who might come talk to us. Now, sometimes we need a little counsel and wisdom in how to handle something. Remember Proverbs, which says, Answer a fool according to his folly, 
And then it says, answer not a fool according to his folly. Now to some people, that's just a simple contradiction in Scripture. No, it's not. You just have to know which fool you're talking to. What he's telling you there is you must have the wisdom to know when to talk to a fool and when not to talk to a fool. Some fools might listen, other fools won't, and you're wasting your breath. I want to read one more verse here in 1 Timothy 5, verse 20. Now it's talking to the elders here. Don't even receive or consider an accusation unless it has gone through the process and there are two or three witnesses. Now that can be true of anyone, as per Matthew 18. But Paul is warning Timothy that in administrating the church, he needs to be very careful about this with the ministry. And I think that because so many people can have so many grudges against an elder. It is easy to get an attitude about one because they're human and they're to put in a position of oversight and we resent that on some level as carnal human beings to start with. So false accusations will be made against an elder sooner, quicker, and more frequently than they will the average church member. So he's telling him here, take that into account, into consideration, and be sure that you don't do that. But, verse 20, them that sin, rebuke before all, that others also may fear. People say, well, why didn't you just handle that privately so it didn't become a big deal? Now, back up just a second here. Who sins? Not the one who's rebuking openly before all. The one who sinned is the one being rebuked before all so that others might hear and fear and not themselves also sin. So instead of becoming bitter and angry over being publicly corrected, we need to be humble and meek and take the attitude, hey, I made a mistake, I sinned with my mouth or my hand or however I sinned, and this being made public is a benefit to all my brethren. Here is my chance to bless my brethren by having a public rebuke. Because they may hear in fear and avoid the sin that I sin. So, if we are publicly rebuked, we should be thankful for it rather than bitter about it. If we are humble and in love with our brethren, as we're supposed to be, and we are, doesn't it say, supposed to take chastening patiently? Why then do we act? Why then do we react carnally? Whether it be private rebuke or public rebuke. What I'm saying here is that our level of spirituality is what is at question if we become angry and upset when we are rebuked either privately or publicly. Christ was rebuked 
as openly and publicly as can possibly happen. It was very shameful, but he despised that shame and said, forgive them, Father. They don't really understand what they're doing. He hadn't even sinned. He was being accused of our sins. And he accepted public rebuke and death quietly and patiently. He is our standard. He is the one we are to look to. Let's not be like Esau and take it lightly. Paul had the Corinthians rebuke that person who was sinning publicly and openly. And I'm sure it was very, very shameful and embarrassing for that individual, wouldn't you think? To be actually put out of the church, not just rebuked publicly, but put out. Now there was a chance for that individual who was already in a carnal attitude to start to take the attitude and approach of Esau. Right? He could have treated his birthright toward the kingdom of God lightly, the sacrifice of Christ lightly, and just said fully on all of them and gone his way. Instead, that person swallowed his pride, swallowed his chain, repented of his sin, and asked for reinstatement. Now that took unusual courage, unusual strength. And when he came back into the congregation, he would have to bear his shame, and perhaps even whisperings, because that's what was going on. Those people, when he repented and quit sinning, refused to let him come back. Paul had to write another letter and tell them, first of all, you condone sin, and then when sin was sin uncovered, you went even further to the wrong by then not being willing to forgive the person who did repent. Now accept him back and change your attitudes toward him. He's not a sinner anymore. He's under the blood of Christ. Quit whispering about him. Quit referring to, you know, so-and-so and what he did four years ago. Take him today and tomorrow. Everybody change your approach and attitude. Give the man a chance. He's quit sinning. Now, if he continues to sin, it has to be dealt with again. But if he's truly repented and changed then give him every opportunity to retain his birthright with Christ. Don't hold grudges. I talked to a man a few years ago that said, I will not change my attitude about that person. I will not repent. I will remain bitter. I can't work with a man like that. How do you work with it? I went to see him a couple, three more times and talked about the weather and news of the church, but until that attitude changed, there's no way that he could be a part of us or a part of God's church anywhere, really. 
because his attitude, even though he might be sitting in with a form of religion on the Sabbath, he denies the power of God, the Spirit of God, of repentance. We may lack love, but we also lack humility. Had Esau been humble, had he not turned to rebellion and a bad attitude, God would have seen a way to bless Esau. He really would have. God is fair. Let's not despise our birthright. Let's understand what this is talking about. Instead of just some ancient history about some guy that got bitter because he sold his birthright for soup, let's understand that our birthright is in jeopardy when we have attitudes about each other. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And I think that we are very near some major changes and, and a major leap forward in understanding and God's dealing with the world and us. And I know that Satan would love to see us destroyed right now. And he will use anything he can to divide us, to hurt us, to cause us to give up, to cause us to be bitter, because he goes about as a raging lion seeking whom he may devour. And any time we get in an attitude of lightness or taking for granted our brethren or our God and his instruction, then we are candidates for his subtleties and his devices. When we have trouble within, it drives us apart. When we have persecution from without, it pushes us together. Now I hope that Satan is from without. And when he accuses and persecutes and uses us to do that, we don't need to turn and fight one another. We need to turn and fight Satan. Draw near to God. That's how you resist the devil. Draw near to God and he will flee from you because he doesn't like the presence of God. So we need to repent in humility and love and understanding with one another and help one another rather than pick at and destroy one another. Let's fight the enemy from without and help each other. Thereby taking great strength, great power, and great carefulness with God's law, which is summarized by love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Defend your neighbor with the same strength and energy you carnally defend yourself. You know how much bigger you can use to defend yourself, don't you? Justify yourself. Use the same power, the same energy to defend your neighbor. Then you're approaching the kind of love that God wants you to have. not saying, well, my neighbor's the problem. I'm not. Come on. We're all the problem. Every one of us is the problem. And Satan will exacerbate and magnify our problems. We have to pull together as a body. 
So let's not despise what God has given us here. Let's take it very seriously. Be very committed to it and committed to our family rather than rebelling against each other as Esau did against his family. See, it's easy to be a little Esau. It's not hard to do at all. It's natural. If you let yourself get in a bad attitude, it's really, really hard to redo it. <laughs> we became Laodicea, not caring, lukewarm. That's the attitude he had. He was lukewarm toward his birthright. That is the attitude that characterized the church more than any other in this end time. Having a form of godliness, understanding the truth, but denying the power thereof. Let's see that in these next few verses. For you are not come to the mountain that might be touched, like Sinai, and that burned with fire, nor into blackness and darkness and tempest, like a volcano blowing in front of you. But that's scary enough. I've flown over volcanoes that were active. I've watched hot lava flow. It can be pretty scary. The sound of a trumpet, the voice of words, which voice that they heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. They heard the voice of Christ says that he speaks, doesn't it, in Revelation 1, the voice of many waters like a thundering waterfall. Scared them. They couldn't handle that. Don't let him talk to us. We think we love God. You want to hear God talk to us? Probably not. Do you want to hear a man talk to us? Probably not. <laughs> well, we just don't want to hear anything that might correct us, that might guide us, that might lead us. At least carnally speaking, we don't. But the Spirit of God in us can cause that carnality to be choked off so that we are willing to listen to God and to man that God sends. If we react against those whom God sends to speak to us, then we need to grasp that we are carnal, that we're reacting humanly, we're not reacting by the Spirit. So we need to change, change our attitude, and react according to the Spirit of God. Because that's one of the tests and trials God sends us. Understand this. God spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden. God spoke to Israel at Mount Sinai. God was not, or let's, let me rephrase that, man did not want to hear God in the garden, nor did they want to hear God in Sinai, nor did they want to hear Christ on earth. And in fact, they wanted someone else to rule them and ask for king. We ourselves put ourselves in the position where God does not often talk with us, but speaks through men. We ask for it. We deserve it. I'm sorry. That's the way it is because of the way we reacted to God. And God even said to Samuel, don't worry about it. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me because I'm speaking through you. 
I believe with all my heart God spoke through Herbert Armstrong. Not every word the man said, but he spoke through it. And if we rejected that man, as many have, we were not rejecting Herbert Armstrong. We were rejecting God. And if God sends us watchmen to warn us about what's coming and what we need to do about it, and we reject them, they're reading it out of the Bible, then we're rejecting God. Because God sent them to do that. So we better be very, very careful. He's warning us. They didn't want to be hear the words of God from the mountain. Verse 20, For they could not endure that which was commanded, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. It was scary. Talking to God is scary. Why? Because we're not like God. We're so far from the way God is that when we do hear God, we can't relate to it. Don't want to hear that. He's overprotective, or however we might phrase it. He's too severe. He's too harsh. And yet he says he's a God of mercy. David understood that. He said, no, don't turn me over to men. I know what they'll do. I'll just take whatever punishment God needs out. He grasped that. Verse 21, And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. He was scared to go up the mountain too, but he went. Are we afraid to go up the mountain? Are we afraid to let God rule us? Are we afraid to let God speak to us? Do we resent it? Reject it? Become selfish about it? And self-defensive. He says, no, we don't go there. We don't go to Mount Zion. Now, where do we go? He explains that. We're in a New Testament, a new covenant, a new way. Verse 22, you aren't come to that mountain. You're not come to Moses. But you are come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We are come to better promises, in other words. We're looking to the heavenly Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, that will come down at the beginning of the millennium from God. We're looking to eternal promises, in other words, through the real Zion and heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. God has assigned an unnumberable amount of angels to take care of us. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn. The church of the firstborn has been assigned by God to us. It has authority. It has power. It has a ministry. It has forms that it must follow, as in the pastoral uh, books that Paul and others wrote to the ministry, which are written in heaven. So we are in this together, our names written in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Hearkening back to what he wrote in Hebrews 11. We're brought to this incredible array of witnesses, of people who were willing to trust God. and to Emmanuel, the mediator of the new covenant. 
and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. The blood of lambs, of bulls and goats won't save us. The sprinkling of the blood of Christ, and wherein he despised any shame that might come upon him as a result of our sins, and we won't even accept our own sins. But we'll find a way to defend, to lie, to justify, rather than just say, I'm sorry, I won't do it anymore. Pray for me that I don't do it anymore. Strengthen me. Help me. Set a good example for me. If I'm weak in some area, be careful around me. Paul said he wouldn't even eat meat if people believed you should be a vegetarian in front of them. That's pretty drastic. I've had people say, oh, oh, I don't know whether I can go that far or not. I like meat. What you're saying there is that I love meat more than I want to see one of my brothers be in the kingdom of God. I love alcohol more than I want to see my brother in the kingdom of God. What you're saying is I don't love my brother, I love my meat or my beer or my booze or my fornication, or my adultery, or whatever it is. If somebody has a weakness with something, you should not, in any way, afford them opportunity or enable them to excuse their weakness and give in to it. We should be firm. We should be careful. I know we don't like that. But if we don't like that, we are reacting carnally, not spiritually. We are walking by the flesh, not by the spirit. Do I need to say that louder or repeated six times here? Or can we just understand? Verse 25, see that you refuse not him that speaks. For if they escape not who refused him that spoke on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven. He spoke to them in the wilderness, they refused him. Even after he delivered them from Egypt, and their carcasses fell in the wilderness, because they wouldn't listen and wouldn't trust him, would not accept his leadership. Well, if God let that happen to them because of their carnality, how much more should we listen to him who came, lived a perfect life, died for us, and ascended to the heaven, who is the author and finisher of our salvation and the captain of our salvation? Listen to him. These are his words. 1 Timothy 5.19 are his words. Don't eat meat. If a brother doesn't understand that it's okay around that person, period. Because you're walking by the Spirit and you love that person more than you love physical meat. Or whatever the subject may be. Do we have some growth and love to accomplish? Those people in 1 Corinthians 5 were enabling that incestuous relationship by sticking each other in the ribs with their elbows and laughing at it or 
condoning it in whatever way. Had they resisted that entirely and completely and said, you're wrong, you need to repent, they might have helped the person overcome it. Instead, Paul had to, from somewhere else, intervene because they were enabling that person by their attitudes to continue what he was doing. They didn't love him enough, so they let him sin. That sin could have cost him eternal life. Go back and read some of those scriptures that say that such and such will not inherit the kingdom of God. See what those categories are. And if you have a brother or a sister in the church who has a weakness in any one of those areas, then you'd better love him enough not to enable him to continue his problem. Otherwise, you're taking the sacrifice of Christ lightly, and you're no different than Esau. Let's take Christ speaking from heaven very seriously. Whose voice then shook the earth, verse 26, at Mount Sinai. But now he has promised, saying, yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. Read Joel 2. Read other scriptures in 1 Peter, 2 Peter. And this word, yet once more, signifies removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. God will shake the whole earth. He'll shake the heavens. The sun will become dark and the moon is sackcloth of blood. And this earth is going to be shaken to its very core once more. And only that which cannot be shaken will remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. We have to conduct ourselves in such a way as is acceptable to God. There are those who wanted to be deacons, who wanted to be elders in the church for the wrong reasons. They wanted to lord it over people. They wanted to throw their weight around. They wanted to be looked up to. In other words, they wanted a job out of vanity, ego, deceit, conceit, That is not acceptable to God. God says, serve, give, help. And don't be egocentric or self-righteous about it when you do it. Don't lord it over people. Love them, help them, serve them, give to them. Don't push them. But that's exactly what happened. Young men were ordained who were full of ego and pride and vanity. And they lorded it over people. Elders were ordained for the wrong reasons, for the wrong time. People not even really knowing them, but just ordaining them because they liked them, because they polished their boots or whatever reason, without really showing the fruits of eldership. So if you want to be a deacon or an elder, God says in the pastoral books, strive lawfully. 
seek the office for the right reasons that are acceptable to God, not out of vanity and ego, as so often happened. We are to be brothers together. We're to do it acceptably, with reverence and fear. How much time do I have left? For our God is a consuming fire. You can't mess around with God. He will consume the wicked in fire. The righteous he will preserve and give eternity and life forever. Then he breaks that off, which is really the end of the instruction to these new, newly converted Jews who had a trouble with Christ. And are we not finding that we ourselves have trouble with Christ? By the way we treat each other, we show that we are treating Christ and his sacrifice lightly. So it's not just those Jews, but we spiritual Jews to whom this is written in the end time. This book is to you and to me. It's not just to those newly converted physical Jews back then who had become spiritual Israelites or Jews. It's to us. We as an entire church took it lightly. He says, get over it. Take these things seriously. Let brotherly love continue, chapter 13. He gives some pastoral instruction here at the end. He's, he's through talking about, for the most part, the beauty and the power and the love and the humility of Christ and all he did for us and how he can give us salvation and how he chastens us and helps us. He gives examples about how to serve him from heaven, not be like Esau was in our spiritual life. Now he starts giving some advice here in chapter 13 to wrap this up. Let brotherly love continue. Don't forsake it. Love one another. Don't despise one another. Don't get mad at one another. Forgive one another how many times in a day? 490. Seven times 70. Oh, forgot that one. I couldn't even forgive them once today. I'm going to carry my grudge for a week, a month, six months, a year. I'll never forgive that man. Are we walking by the Spirit or by the flesh? How long do you carry a hurt or a grudge and not forgive? Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. You never know, do you? Better be careful how you treat people. You might just want to, okay, I'll, I'll go ahead and love the ones that I have to. But strangers, ah, who knows? Remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them. Somebody's in prison, put yourself, project yourself into that position. I know someone just released from prison. Must have been a long, hard pull. There for reasons, had a debt to pay, debt paid. That person comes among us, we had better treat that person as if it was us who was just released 
from prison. How would you feel had you been in prison for some crime or sin or whatever it might have been? Robbing a bank, molesting a child, killing someone, something you would probably be very ashamed of and had become public. You were publicly thrown in prison for 5, 10, 15, 20 years and now were released. Would you not have fear? Would you not have shame? Would you not be afraid that people would hold against you what you had done even though you had done your time? Would you not be afraid that you would be referred to from now on as that ex-con, that murderer, that thief, that molester, whatever the sin or crime may have been? It's no different than 1 Corinthians 5. That man took his public shame, he took his public punishment, he repented, and he came back, and he was probably ashamed and a little fearful the first time he walked into services. And he ran into a brick wall by people who, would, who had enabled him, but then would not forgive him. That's pretty tough, isn't it? Isn't that tough? I need to think about these things. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. 1 Corinthians 12, we're all of the body of Christ. Do you go with your body? If your hand does something wrong, do you get a big stick and smack it? If your legs go the wrong direction, do you get yourself a baseball bat and reach down there and just smack your legs? Now, I suppose with our tongue, once in a while, we smite our hand or our foot. <laughs> Dumb idiot, why'd you do that? Why'd you burn yourself on the fire? I've talked to myself that way. So there is a time to correct self and to smite self, I suppose. And there's time for us to, in love, iron sharpen iron or smite each other. And if we need to smite one of our brethren, Hopefully we'll do it in love and concern, and hopefully they'll accept it in humility and love and not get their back up over it or their nose out of joint or their panties in a wad or whatever they do. Suffer adversity is being yourselves also in the body. Marriage is honorable in everything, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Use sex right, in other words. Let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. We can work for something we might desire, but we shouldn't covet it and spend undue times trying and worrying about trying to have more. Be content. And if you're blessed above that, be content with that. Just be content. It is lust and jealousy that makes us unhappy. People can be very, very happy in cardboard shacks. I've seen them. Very, very happy. People can be very discontent 
in a 20-bedroom mansion because they also want one in the Caribbean. See, it is the attitude of mind that is the problem. If we're in a desirable, greedy, materialistic attitude, then we can't be happy. If we can be happy with whatever we have that has been given us, what we've earned, then we're happy whether we're in a cardboard shack or a 20-room mansion or 10 of them. It's a matter of attitude. It's wanting what you can't have that makes you miserable. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do to me. A man faced that test, passed it yesterday, and he was healed. Remember them which have the rule or the oversight over you, who have spoken to you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conduct. Listen, don't resent. Jesus Christ, or Emmanuel, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always done it that way. He's always put men in charge. We accept that. And we remember them and pray for them if they have that oversight. Be not carried about with different and strange doctrines. There's a lot of that going on today. People think, boy, I have it right. How much time do I have left on that tape? Oh, I've got plenty. I'll finish this. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with a good attitude, a willingness, with grace, pardon, love toward others. Not with meats which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. But speaking here of animal sacrifices, we'll see that a little later down. Animal sacrifices could not forgive sin. God didn't even speak to them about sin when they came out of Egypt, I mean about sacrifices, says so in Jeremiah 7.22. He's never been pleased with the blood of bulls and goats. So those things were not really profitable. All they did was remind you, really, that you were doing the wrong thing and it cost you an animal to sin. But it didn't give you eternal life. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat would serve the tabernacle. Should we be doing animal sacrifices today? I think Paul makes it very plain here that we have an altar of God based on the new covenant that those who would still sacrifice bulls and goats have no right to approach. You can only do it through Christ, not through bulls, not through goats. No blood but his. He is the only door into the sheepfold. He's telling us here, we have something special. We need to grasp that. That we are truly in a special opportunity. You have to have a relationship with God. You have to be living according to a covenant you made with him at baptism in order to receive his protection, his guidance, his help, ability to overcome, we go to him. Because on our own, we don't have it. We have a special altar, a special opportunity to go before God the Father through our mediator. 
No one else has that right. Can we take it upon ourselves to take that lightly, despise it, or be lukewarm about it? How many of our prayers are lukewarm and rambling? They need to be bold. They need to be strong. They need to be meaningful. They need to be sincere. We should have a special feeling when we pray to our Father in heaven because there are very, very few people who are afforded that opportunity. Very few. Many were called, roughly 150,000 here at the end. Seems like a lot of people unless you compare it with the six billion that walk the earth. By that comparison, the many who were called aren't very much. And out of those, only a small amount will be chosen. So respect and revere and be thankful that you can go to God, which has not been done by many people throughout all of human experience. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Not burned in the camp, but outside the camp because they represented the sin. Sin should not be in the camp. Wherefore, Emmanuel also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Wasn't allowed in the camp because he carried our sin. Let us go, therefore, to him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Let's go where he went. Let's take our sins outside with him. Let's allow our sins to be covered in his blood, which is without the camp. Now, in a larger sense, we have the physical camp of Israel here, hundreds of millions of Israelites living on earth today. But they're living a Babylonian lifestyle. And God has said, go without, go outside their camp. Leave their cities, leave their culture, leave their society. Go out in the wilderness away from them. Christ said, I will be there and dwell among you, and I will deliver you in the wilderness. So when he says here, go without the camp, there is a bigger picture that we need to grasp. There are those who say, I will leave it just in the nick of time. When things get bad, I'll go. They are not willing to walk forward in faith. They take what Christ says in his word, lightly. They're not willing to leave father, mother, brother, sister, wife, husband, land, homes, until they decide that for their very own safety they had best. There's a huge lesson here to learn. But you see, we're still yet carnal. We're still yet selfish. We still pick and choose which of God's words and Christ's words we will choose to follow. I love God, I love men, I just won't love that. 
I'll forgive men, I just won't forgive that one. And I certainly won't do it seven times seventy in one day. I will carry my grudge until I want to get rid of it or until they die or I die. Are you willing to go outside the camp with Christ and not say a word, not defend yourself, not to justify, not to blame it on someone else? That's the oldest excuse there is. Blame it on my husband. Blame it on my wife. Blame it on my neighbor. They're the ones who are sinning, not me. That is taking the sacrifice of Christ lightly, and you're not willing to go outside the camp with him and humility and meekness. And be selfless. Let us go, therefore, forth or forth, therefore, to him, without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. This society, this world, the cities in it, are not what we're here for. They won't continue. They're going away. We're looking for that heavenly Jerusalem, as it said back in verses 12, or chapter 12, verses 22 and 23. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Thanks for the covenant we have. Thanks for the opportunity to live forever in peace and safety. And thanks that he has called brethren whom we didn't know for us to learn to love and forgive and help and strengthen and not let Satan get in between us and destroy us. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. Talk to one another. Don't forget to communicate. Iron must sharpen iron. We must help and strengthen one another. <coughs> not get offended at one another. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. It is a sacrifice, is it not, to do good to others? Is it a sacrifice to communicate with them because we have to put down our anger, our fear, our frustration, our unforgiving nature? Yeah, it's a sacrifice. But we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, day in and day out, Romans 12.1. If we are to take the sacrifice of Christ seriously, we must forgive. We must not hold any grudge. Forgive them, Father. <coughs> Maybe they don't know what they're doing to me. Maybe they don't grasp how I feel. Forgive them anyway. Obey them that have the oversight or the rule over you, and submit yourselves. <coughs> Don't resent the ministry. Don't resent the elders. This is instruction from God. If we take God's words lightly, he who speaks from heaven through Paul, right here in Scripture, and all Scripture is given for inspiration, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, one of the things doesn't come to mind, Reproof, 
chastening. That's it. Let's obey them. They've been put there to watch for your souls. They're there to help you. Don't despise it. Don't rebel against it. Don't talk against it. As they that must give account, there's an obligation and a responsibility they have. <laughs> Consider that they'll have to answer to God for whether you grow, change, and overcome or not. They have a serious obligation to preach the truth to you, whether, whether it's comfortable or not, whether it's popular or not, whether you want to hear it or not. God says stand up and do it back in Ezekiel, and they'll be hard-headed, and they won't listen, and they'll stiffen their neck, but do it anyway, whether they like it or not. Is it fun to tell people they're carnal and selfish and vain and egocentric? Not a bit fun. Because the natural reaction of human beings is not to like that. And we all want to be liked. But even as with our children, we need to be respected above being liked. So many people want their children to like them and they bend over backward to be liked, and they lose their respect because the kids misuse and abuse them and push them around. If they respect you, they'll love you and like you ultimately. But if they don't respect you, they will eventually despise you. They'll rebel against you because they know they can. Far better to be stronger and weaker. That they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. If you resist and you resist, you'll probably get hammered on more and more, and then that isn't profitable for you, is it? That's, un that's not fun. Pray for us, speaking of the ministry, he said. For we trust we have a good conscience and all things willing to live honestly. We've got to do things that are right. Pray for us that we can and live in good conscience before God and man. But I beseech you the rather to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Pray that God would give him peace and safety and the job that he had to do and the traveling he had to do so that he might return and be with them. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Emmanuel that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you mature or perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. We don't want to just get by. We want to do the things that are well-pleasing in his sight. You know, a lot of times we'll say, is God going to let me by with this? Can I muck through? Will he step on me? Instead of having the attitude of, is what I'm doing going to be just well-pleasing and make God happy with me? See, there's the true spirit and attitude to have. If what I'm saying, if what I'm, the way I'm treating my brother or my sister with my conduct morally in, in every way, would God be just tickled to death to look down and see what I'm doing and be well-pleased? 
Our attitude shouldn't be just to get by with as much as we can with God. It should be an attitude of how can I please him and make him happy. Through Emmanuel of Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Or so be it. And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation. Listen to what he said here. There's an awful lot of instruction in the book of Hebrews and those scriptures that are attendant to it and tied in with it. Listen to it. Don't reject it. Don't rebel against it. But listen. For I have written the letter to you in few words. Know you that our brother Timothy is set at liberty and been in jail apparently, with whom if he comes shortly I will see you. Salute all them that have the rule over you. Say hi to the ministers, he says. He's writing to the people. And all the saints, they of Italy, salute you. Grace with you all. Amen.